But unfortunately, you've got you've got me, so uh, you got to put up with that for the next uh, three hours uh, or so. Uh, great to be here, and I'm kicking off our new series, as, as Pastor Steve said, uh, called Culture Shift. You know, we live in a, a, a society and a culture that's constantly changing, shifting. There's a whole bunch of crazy things going on. Um, but you know, the one thing that remains the same is God's Word. Uh, and uh, we want to build our life on God's Word and look at God's Word. And, and so today we're going to dive into um, that and, and hopefully learn some lessons. Uh, great to see Liam is everywhere. Uh, you don't normally see him. Liam is one of our comms team uh, who's always on photos. And uh, he's kind of like elusive. You only, you know, you only know he was there because you saw the photos. But I caught you today. Uh, and can we give a shout out to Liam and our comms team? Do a great job. He's probably embarrassed by that. But, you know, culture is everywhere. Uh, we, may, we may be from different countries. I'm from South Africa originally. I don't have an accent. But we all have different cultures, maybe a, a culture of a nation. Uh, maybe we have, there's cultures within a sports team. There's cultures within a work environment, within a family, within a church. Um, and, but more specifically, the culture that we're looking at today is the culture of the world, right? The culture that we maybe see a, a dominant a cultural narrative that we see being outplayed. And so we're looking at the culture of the world in contrast or in comparison to God's culture, kingdom culture, Christian culture. Um, and culture is, is like a set of behaviors, uh, values, ways of doing things, um, which often sometimes happen without realizing them, right? It's a kind of a way, it's a culture of a people. Um, and here's the thing, I think we, we can either seek culture or reflect culture, but we can't be culture neutral. We can't kind of sit on the fence. We either, we either set culture as people or we kind of reflect the culture of the environment that we find ourselves in. Um, and you can't be culture neutral. And I believe that God has called us to be people who set culture. That whatever environment we find ourselves in, we, we reflect kingdom culture. We reflect the culture of heaven and we set culture or change culture. Let me pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that your presence is here, God. I thank you that you want to speak to your people, encourage your people. And I pray that as we dive into your word today, God, help us to see you. Help us to understand you more and help us to be people, God, who exalt you. God, who live for you, God, who put you first in whatever we do, God. Would you speak to us this morning, God? Would you shift us? Would you change us? Would you, more than my words or, or words, on a piece of paper or an iPad. God, would you speak your word to us this morning? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, well, we, we find ourselves, right, in a world that is very much anti-church, very much anti-religion, anti-God, and more specifically, anti-Christian. Uh, and the challenge for us is, is that we live in that world, right? How do we live in that world, uh, yet be true to our Christian values? Be true to our God, be true to Jesus in everything we do. And how do we treat people with grace and love, yet still live God's truth in our lives? It's the challenge. You know, in an ever-shifting and changing world, the one thing that remains true, the one thing that remains unchanging is God's Word, right? It's the truth, and that is what we should build our lives upon. Uh, and so the culture that I want to tackle today uh, is the, by no means a new culture. In fact, I think in some ways, it's a culture that's always been there. It's the culture of, of me or the culture of I, because I think we live in a culture that is focused on self. 
We live in a culture that's focused on self, a, a culture that is obsessed with self-indulgence, uh, with, with self-promotion, with self-interest, a culture that is focused on self. Um, and I mean, right now I'm preaching on an iPad, right? I've got an iPhone and I'm even using my eyelids, right? Well, it's all about I. Uh, and uh, I think when we, thank you, Shemaine, I know. It couldn't get much worse, but I went there. Let's be honest, from, from time to time, we've all made it about ourselves, right? You know, the world says, I am, but I think kingdom says he is. There's a shift in focus from I am to he is. Now, and let's be honest, from time to time, we've all made it, or maybe, maybe all of the time, we've made it a little bit about ourselves, right? We've made it about me. We've made it about I. We've, we've focused on ourselves. And even more so, I think the world would tell you to make it about yourself. The world will tell you to focus on yourself because the world glorifies, right, indulgence. It glorifies individual achievement. It glorifies building your own kingdom, right? Being your own boss, living your own truth. It focuses on doing things your own way, you know, like my way or the highway. It focuses on caring about your own appearance and how you portray yourself. It focuses on your own interests, me, 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 I, I, I. But I think God has called us to live differently. I think the truth is we, we weren't designed to live that way. We weren't designed for us to be the hero of the show. In fact, we were designed, I think, to live in a kingdom. And, and a kingdom revolves around the king. And our king is Jesus, right? So we're designed to live with Jesus as the main central figure, with our life focused on him. And I think when, when we don't, when we live for ourselves, I think sometimes things begin to fall apart, right? Uh, then when things fall apart, we begin to ask questions. We begin to question what's going on. We begin to play the blame game. We blame, our, we blame others or, or someone or something that's at fault. Or, or maybe we, we try to put it on ourselves and we focus on ourselves and try and do what we can to fix the solution. But the more we do that, the more kind of disillusioned we become. The more confused we become, the more we begin to ask questions, maybe ask questions of God or doubt God. Um, and it, it results in this kind of confusion that produces a kind of deranged form of thinking. Like our logic kind of goes out the window. And there's a great story that I want to dive into today from the book of Daniel. It's a great book. It's in the Old Testament, one of the prophetic books. And um, I think sometimes a pill is a little bit easier to swallow when we can kind of look at somebody else's story, right? And kind of point fingers at them and then realize, actually, that's kind of a lot like me. And you know, maybe I've done that. And maybe there's something that I can learn. So let's look at the story together and, and see maybe if there's some things we can learn. And so we're going to look at a guy called King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to call him King Neb, just to keep it real easy. Um, and so right now, the, the people in, the, in this historic context, the people of Israel have been taken into captivity. They're in exile. Their, their city, their, their nation has been um, defeated by the Babylonian Empire. And they're trying to live for God in a culture that is very much anti the God of the Bible in a culture that, that is very much serving their own gods, or even more so, King Neb has his own statue, and everyone is bowing down to that. They, they're almost like worshiping this king. Um, and it's very much almost the culture that we find ourselves in today, right? A culture that's very anti-God. 
Um, and so we're going to look at King Nebuchadnezzar um, from the book of Daniel, who's actually an historical figure. So he actually is an historical figure, and he was the, actually the longest um, reigning um, monarch of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Um, and the capital city of, of, of the Babylonian Empire was Babylon, um, which is the city that he finds himself in and his palace is in. Um, and it's also important to know that, that while Babylon uh, was an historical city, Often, when we read through the Bible, we see Babylon referenced as a metaphor, right? The, the, the Bible often uses Babylon as a metaphor to contrast God's rule and God's reign and God's eternal city. In fact, um, one definition of the word Babylon is a city devoted to materialism and sensual pleasure. Uh, and so we're looking at Babylon kind of in contrast to, to God and God's reign and, and God's kingdom. And so we're going to pick up in Daniel chapter 4, and there'll be a whole bunch of, um, if you've got the, uh, the Elam Christian Center app, uh, there'll be a bunch of scripture in there. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm kind of going to skim through, but in your own time, feel free to go and, and have a look. But here we go. In chapter 4, it says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And I had a dream that made me afraid. And as I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. And so after he woke up, he commands his wise men uh, to, to be brought before him. All the different people that he had, he had magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners. All of them came um, to try and interpret this dream, and none of them can, until finally he brings in Daniel. Um, and Daniel had the, had the gift of interpreting dreams. Actually, at previous times, he'd interpreted a dream for the king. But maybe he didn't like so much what he said, and so maybe it was like the last option. Like, okay, if nobody else can do it. Nobody else is going to give me a good interpretation. Maybe we should get this Daniel guy. And so he gets Daniel in, um, and uh, we, see, we see the king, he's, he's content. Content in his own achievements. He's prosperous. Things are going well. He's really happy. He's kind of looking over all that he's done and built and created, and man, it's good. Um, and so he's really happy, and then something shifts. He's got this dream that he can't understand. It disturbs him. Uh, and so the dream that he had was a dream of this massive tree. It's a massive tree. It's luscious. It's fruitful. It's a, it stretches it over the entire nation until one day this tree is cut down with only its stump remaining. Uh, and so here Daniel comes and he gives the interpretation. Now you've got to understand, for Daniel to give this kind of interpretation, this is quite a bold move. It's quite a brave move. This is very easily for him to just kind of get his head, you know, chopped off. Literally, like this could be the end of him. If the king doesn't kind of like this interpretation, you know, he kind of just could get rid of him. But this is what the interpretation says. It says, your majesty, you are the tree. How encouraging. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant, distant parts of the earth. So the Babylonian empire become massive. And so your, it says, your majesty uh, saw a holy one, a messenger coming from heaven and saying, cut down, and destroy, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while his roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with dew of heaven. And let him live with wild animals until seven times pass for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree from the Most High uh, that he has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from the people and live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by you before you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. 
and, give, and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my... I love this. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness uh, by being kind to the oppressed. And it may be that your prosperity will continue. I can't imagine that being an easy thing for Daniel to do, right? It's not really the easiest message to deliver. And maybe this is where the term don't shoot the messenger comes from, right? Um, and essentially the message is that King Nebuchadnezzar will lose his kingdom, right? He'll lose his kingdom, but not only that, he'll lose his sanity, right? He'll go out and be living with wild animals, eating grass. This is a bit of a demotion for, you know, the most powerful man in the world uh, to be living with wild animals and eating grass. Um, and and so the, actually, in fact, um, He's going to go crazy, right? This is what we see, that he's going to go crazy. And in fact, the word Babel um, literally means confusion. So the word Babel is where we get Babylon or Babylon from. Um, and early in the Bible, you might have heard the story of the Tower of Babel that was built, and then the God confuses the language. And so Babel uh, means confusion. It's a confusion that produces a deranged way of thinking. You see, when we follow a way that is not God's way, it begins to produce confusion in our lives. And we begin to live in chaos. Actually, it begins to give us chaos internally. When we follow a way that's not God's way, it begins to produce confusion, which produces like an in, internal chaos, right? Like an internal turmoil. Things begin to go wrong. And, and often what we see is what happens internally then gets manifested externally. So as chaos starts internally and then externally we see it. I don't imagine, I can imagine being in the position he would, there'd be a lot of people that were trying to vie for his position. You know, back in those days, in order to get someone's position, you didn't have to wait for a promotion, you just kind of killed the guy, right? It was a little bit different. Imagine that, you're like, oh, you want the boss's job, so you just kill him. But different today, we can't do that. Uh, but, you know, obviously there would have been stress. There would have been, you know, this expanding empire. Imagine all the people issues. Uh, I'm imagining that the king would have lived in some kind of internal chaos. And eventually that internal chaos starts making its way into his life. And we see that evidence in, in, in what happens here. In fact, in verse 28, it, it talks about the dream being fulfilled. It says this, all this happened to King Neb 12 months later. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Wow. Is, doesn't that give a keen insight into what was going on in his mind? Isn't this the great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power, for my majesty, for my glory? And it says then in 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what has been decreed for you, King Neb. Your royal authority has been taken from you. Again, it goes on to say in, in, 30, in verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with, drenched with dew of heaven until the hair, his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. That's not a pretty sight, is it? That's a bit yuck. And then things shift. Things shift in verse 34. It says this, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. 
Interesting. Then I praised the Most Higher, honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion, His dominion is an inter, is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing, and He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the powers of the earth. And He goes on and on. And then it says, uh, because everything He does is right and His ways are just, and those who walk in pride He is able to humble. This is a massive shift, a massive shift from where he was talking about himself to where he's glorifying God. And I think there's some keys here. I want to kind of break down this kind of this last passage and, and look at maybe so there's some things that we can learn. What are, the, what are the key things that brought about the shift from where he was exalting himself to exalting God? And that's the first thing. The first thing I, I think when I see it is I see that he exalted God, right? He exalted God. The first thing he does is exalt God. He puts God back in his rightful place. Because you see, when you try and elevate yourself, you're not only elevating yourself, but you need to pull other things down. So he'd been elevating himself and pulling down God. And here we see a rectification of that. We see him bringing himself down and elevating God. And he recognizes that God is sovereign. In other words, that God is all-powerful, that he reigns over everything, that his dominion is eternal. And he would have known as a king living in that time that all, all uh, you know, big empires, they rise and fall, right? They only last for a certain time, but God's is different. God is eternal, right? His dominion is eternal. And so he recognizes that, you know, he says that all the peoples of the earth are nothing in comparison to God. Even the greatest king simply pales in comparison to God. So he begins to exalt God. He begins to lift God. He begins to put God back in his rightful place while bringing himself down. And this is a massive shift in perspective. Remember what he said? He said, uh, is this not the great Babylon that I have built? By my mighty power, for my glory, the shift comes and he, he says that he, he raised his eyes to he heaven and when he does that, his sanity is restored. He moves his focus from himself, from his own accomplishments, from his own achievements and he moves it towards God. Here's a question that I think we can ask ourselves. The question is this, when things go wrong, where do you focus? When things go wrong, where do you focus? Is your focus on the problem? Is your focus on yourself and how you can fix the problem? Is your focus on, on who or what is to blame? Or is your focus on God? When things go wrong, what are you exalting? Because sometimes when things go wrong, we exalt the problem, right? The problem becomes this massive thing. It's kind of like we give this problem extra, extra glory that it didn't have. This problem becomes this massive thing when really the problem is very small in comparison to God. When things go wrong, where do we focus? Do we focus on God and what He can do in His power? Or do we focus on ourselves? I think the second thing He does is this. He, he, he acknowledges God. I think it's one thing to understand who God is. And it's another thing to recognize what God does. Right, let me, let me say it like this. You, you can believe that God is all-powerful and that God is almighty, but you can still, at the same time as believing God is all-powerful, you can still believe that everything you've done and you have is all through your power. 
So it's one thing to recognize and exalt God, and it's one thing to acknowledge that everything you have is from Him. This is what he says. He says, he does, talking about God, He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, what have you done? There's an acknowledgement not only in God's power, but in that what he has, that his kingdom is there because God has allowed him to have it, right? There's an acknowledgement of what God has done. I love what it says in James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. Again, in 1 Corinthians 4.7, for what gives you the right to make such judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything, I love it, he just, he asks the question, but then he answers his question with another question. And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? Like if every, if, like what do you have that God hasn't given you? And then if everything that you have is from God, why boast like as if you've done it yourself? Why boast as if it's not something that was given to you? You know, we acknowledge God by the way that we steward things, by the way we care for things, by the way we, we manage the resources, the people, the finance, whatever we have. We, we, we acknowledge God in the way that we steward it, in the way that we care for it. Here's a question we can ask. Where do I need to acknowledge His blessing in my life? Where do I need to acknowledge God's blessing in my life? Because sometimes we can know who God is, know He's all-powerful, Believe He has created God, but yet not acknowledge Him for what He's done in our life. Not acknowledge Him for the way that He's cared for us, for the way He's provided for us, for the way that He's opened doors for us. The last point I wrote down like this, and it's probably in your notes like this, and I realized it was wrong, which is always great. I wrote down that the last point is that He humbles Himself. But in actual fact, when we look at the story, God humbles Him. He never humbles Himself. And I think he makes an important observation, though. At the end of that passage, it says, it says that those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. How many know that it works out a lot better when we humble ourselves rather than waiting for God to humble us? You know, when we just look at the King, the King Nibs, Nibs, Nibs example, I, I don't know if I'd want to live with wild animals and eat grass for seven years. Yeah, it's not great. But... In James 4 verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. There's two options here. We can either humble ourselves and allow God to lift us up, or we cannot and allow God to humble us. Personally, I'd prefer to have the first. I think it's a lot easier when we simply humble ourselves before God and allow Him to elevate us, allow Him to open the door. You know, we, looked, we, we don't have to look very far to see a lot of people who are trying to force the door open themselves. We're trying to climb the ladder of success by pushing others down, by, you know, using others to get where they want to get, by chasing after success. But I think it's a lot simpler when we simply, when we let God elevate us, when we let God promote us. You know, I recognize and I believe that everything that I have and, and where I am is because God has elevated me. But at the same time, I recognize that He's very easily able to humble me. <laughs> He's very easily able to bring me low or to, to strip me of whatever responsibility He's given me. And so I find it a lot easier just to 
Wait for God's timing. Wait for Him to open the door. It's not easy. It's, it's again, one of those things that's easily said rather than done, but would we be people who simply humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and allow Him to lift us up in the right time? Here's a question we can ask ourselves. Are there any areas of my life where I've become prideful? Are there any areas of my life where I've become prideful? I think often there's a whole bunch of ways we were submitted to God, a whole bunch of areas we were submitted to God, but sometimes there's just a few little areas where we've become prideful, right? And maybe we haven't noticed. And when you, when you ask God and let Him reveal those to you. You know, the interesting thing is, once, you know, the king's sanity is restored and once his kingdom is restored, it actually says that his kingdom is greater than it was before, which is amazing. After all he's done and after all the glorifying for himself, the simple change of being able to glorify God results in a kingdom that's greater than it was before. You know, I think that God wants to build something amazing on each of our lives. But he's only able to do that according to the foundation. How many know that when, when you look at a building, when you look at it like a tall skyscraper, there's actually a lot that goes below. Actually, the ability to, to go high is determined by the strength or the depth of the foundation. And I think for us, it's the same is that God wants to build something on our lives, but he can only build according to the foundation that we ourselves prepare. And I think when we look at these three things, I think these are the things that build the foundation. Our ability to exalt God. As God exalts us, are we still exalting Him or do we begin to be like, oh, I want to exalt myself too? As God lifts us up, are we still acknowledging His ways? Are we still acknowledging His provision? Are we still acknowledging Him? Or are we starting to think, oh, maybe I've done this all myself? Are we staying humble? Are we keeping ourselves humble as God elevates us and allowing Him to keep elevating us? Or are we starting to take a little bit of the credit for ourselves? Would we be people who reject the I, 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 me, me, me? Would we be people who build our lives on God's foundation, on God's Word, who exalt Him first, who acknowledge Him in everything we do and humble ourselves so that He can elevate us? Because when we do, I think our sanity is restored. The internal chaos is settled. I think we can see a lot of people, and I, I know myself, I've been in that same boat where, where, I've got, where, where I've been living in stress and anxiety and worry well, because I've been trying to do it all myself. I've been trying to make it happen myself. I've been trying to figure it out myself, but really I was never designed to do that. But when I lift my eyes to heaven, when I recognize that actually my problems are very small in comparison to God, when I recognize that He's brought me this far and He can take me forward, suddenly my thoughts change. The way I think changes. Suddenly then I can experience God's peace because I've trusted Him with my future. Can I pray for you? God, I thank you, God, that we can trust you with our future, God. I thank you that even in a rapidly changing world, God, you stay the same. I thank you that, God, you are the one who holds our future, God, in your hand. I thank you that your word says that if we, if we, if we, we can cast our cares on you because you care for us, God. If we bring our request to you, God, it says that your peace, Jesus, 
will guard our hearts and minds. And it's a peace that surpasses all understanding, God. So I just pray for every one of us this morning, God, myself included, God. Would you show us, God, areas where we've exalted ourselves, God? Would you show us areas, God, where we have not acknowledged you? And would you show us areas, God, where we need to humble ourselves? And God, as we do that, I thank you, God, that you're going to restore to us peace, God. Restore to us clarity, God. Restore to us a clear mind, God. And God, you'll be able to build something on our lives, God, for your glory.